The Humbling of Apollo It was a fairer day of clear skies when Apollo first spotted Daphne. She hunted alone, as was her habit. Her bow was strung and ready as she stalked through the shadow of the trees. Her quarry of the day was not yet caught, but her hair was already in disarray, strands dangling free of her ribbon. Apollo saw her from afar as the sun arced overhead, and struck by her beauty muttered senseless things that sounded sweet to my ears. Enchanted by Daphne, Apollo murmured about the beauty of her unadorned hair, the fire in her eyes that reminded him of the flickering stars and her tempting lips. He offered thoughtless words of praise for her clever fingers as they carried her bow and the curve of her bare arms to the unlistening air, not knowing I listened. His half-formed sentences did not go unnoticed forever. Daphne's careful perception picked up a predator as readily as it picked out her prey. Hearing his whispers, the shift of his weight on the forest floor, the hunters fled. Then Apollo's pain began to bloom, red and flowing. He shouted for her to stop. Nymph, I beg of you, daughter of Peneus, stop. I am not your enemy. Wait, nymph. You flee me as a deer flees a lion, as a dove flees an eagle on fearful wings. Those fair creatures flee their enemies, those who wish to devour them. I, however, pursue out of love. I intend no harm. Daphne fled on and paid his words no mind. No intent could be more hostile in her mind than love. As she ran, unmindful of the sound of her steps, the deer she was tracking fled. Daphne's course was much the same. Apollo watched Daphne quicken her steps and despaired. His burning heart, ignited as it was by my golden arrow, refused to allow him to relent. He followed and called out again. Oh, I am wretched. Slow down. I am afraid you will fall and injure yourself on these brambles. Your pain would hurt me as well. Your path leads to uneven ground and wild territory. Slow down. Do not run so fast and I will slow my pursuit. Still, Daphne did not hesitate. She ran on, unmoved by his words. The huntress feared no harm from the forest so much as she feared Apollo, for my lead arrow steered her heart. Still, Apollo persisted. What would please you? What do you fear I am? I am not some hermit of the mountain. I am not some shepherd minding a shaggy flock or a herd of cattle. You do not know who seeks you or why you flee, nymph. The Delphic lands, Claris, Tenemos, the shine of Patara, they all serve me. Zeus is my father. His power is evident in me and always will be. Through me, songs harmonize on lyre strings. Unerring are my arrows. Then Apollo, thinking of arrows as he was, realized what power had pierced his heart. His sure arrows had been outmatched, and with his pride overcome by the fervor in his chest, he spoke truth he first denied me. My arrows strike true, but one arrow is surer. The one that struck this wound upon my hollow heart. Medicine is my own invention, and throughout the globe they call me aid-bringer. The powers of healing herbs are my dominion. Love is curable by no herb. The healing arts are of no use to me, their master. My medicines help all, but not my injured heart. At that moment, perhaps mercy would have relented. As Apollo admitted weakness, I could have notched another arrow and dispersed either his fervor or her disdain. That would have been within my power, but then Apollo would have forgotten the lesson. My mercy would have clouded the victory and baited him to dishonor my godhood once more. I saw his pain and I reveled in it. I'm not proud of that choice now, but at the time I knew nothing of the injury I was inflicting. I watched as Daphne fled without hearing Apollo's entreaties. I willed him to feel his wound more keenly. The path of their chase led to the edge of the wood where there was less cover from the wind. 
The gusts tore at her clothes as she ran, blew the ribbon from her hair. Apollo watched as her hair streamed behind her in the wind. Any restraint he had, he lost. Apollo quickened his pace, intent on his pursuit like a sighthound after a rabbit. His fevered heart granted him swiftness, and Daphne soon felt his approach at her back. She ran on, determined but uncertain in each moment if she would be captured in that instant, or if she could evade him for another step. Daphne's strength was waning, for the endurance of an Olympian far exceeds that of a nymph. She grew pale, her steps faltered, but her path led her to within sight of her father's waters. With Peneus's dominion in view, Daphne called for his aid. Help me, father, if your river has power. If my form brings such attention, change it, destroy it. Daphne had hardly finished her pleading when her form began to change. I watched from the mountain as her limbs slowed and bark wrapped around her torso. Her hair shifted into leaves, her arms into branches. Her feet sank as roots into the soil, and there she stood, magnificent as a tree, just as she was as a nymph. Daphne's sudden rooting caused Apollo to nearly trip into her. His arms were around her before he understood what had happened. Apollo's shock as his lips met bark was delightful. Apollo recoiled, a desolate look upon his face. The love still burned in his heart as the arrow remained deep in his chest, but his mind cleared and the frenzy subsided. The haze my arrow brought over his eyes lifted, and his sudden understanding brought him anguish. So there, perched on Parnassus, I watched Apollo weep and lament over the new tree, the first laurel. I watched his careful hands weave her foliage into a crown he rested upon his head in remembrance. I watched as the broken-hearted god made his retreat. Thus, my victory over the self-acclaimed god of war was complete. After basking in the glory of my victory at Parnassus, I eventually returned to my place amongst my mother's retinue. We were fewer in number then. Deimos and Phobos resided with our father, and the expansions that would make Aphrodite's court full and boisterous were still far in the future. Anteros, Harmonia, and Himeros sat arranged around Aphrodite's favored seat like a court awaiting the address of a king. Aphrodite was absent from her hall at that time. I suspect she was visiting my father and avoiding her husband. Anteros rushed to greet me when I arrived, flitting on colorful wings with his long hair streaming behind him. Anteros was old enough at that time he could have stood as my peer, but he clung to his youth longer. His mind and heart were so devoted to innocent affections and wholesome romance that he was slow to choose the life of a grown god. Gods do not get to be naive, so he remained a godling. Anteros's youthful eyes were filled with tears, and he swiftly loosed complaints at my behavior. That was cruel of you, brother. I hate seeing hearts hurt so. Daphne did not deserve such treatment, nor Apollo such mercilessness. He learned his lesson. You could have undone your lead arrow and softened her heart. There was no need for misery. Stop whining, child, Hemeros called from his seat. Not all romances are meant to be fulfilled. Apollo's first love was my domain, not yours. Quit your pleading for a childish happy ending. Hemeros's dark eyes scowled as Anteros turned to him, filled with righteous, petty anger that only young children and deities can muster. Most would find Hemeros to be an intimidating figure, but Anteros never wavered in their frequent quarrels. For all his devotion to soft-hearted, picture-perfect romance, Anteros held the same steely resolve in his ichor that fueled my vengeance on Apollo. I'm hardly so naive as to think that all love can be requited and cherished, Himeros. It was my brother's bow that changed their hearts and expanded your dominion, not your own power. And your brother is the one to make such choices. Aphrodite gave him the bow and filled his quiver. If his will breaks hearts, we can hardly argue. 
There was something mocking about his tone that spurred me to intercede. Perhaps it was the too casual reference to the quiver at my hip. Hemeris was my senior and had joined my mother's company soon after her birth. He knew more than he said of my power. It was not something I wished to discuss with my young brother. Anteros, Apollo spoke falsely and insulted my skill in war. It was only fair that I show him what wounds I can make. A child of our father would never let such words stand against us, I told my dear brother. Anteros's pout remained, but the fury in his eyes receded. All right, brother. I'll trust your judgment. That could have been the end of the argument, but Himeros fed their animosity once more. You should know by now, little bug, that God's loves rarely fall in your domain. Requited love is a thing for insignificant mortals, not the divine. Anteros turned back to Himeros, insults ready on his tongue, and Himeros moved to stand. Then Harmonia rose to intercede, as her sister always did when conflict arose between Anteros and Himeros. Come now, Anteros. There will be other loves. I'm sure Eros will happily craft a romance to your liking and compensation. Perhaps one with a divine player, Eros? Of course, I said. We can fly out together and find some pleasing persons to entertain us. And so we flew out over the world, and after wandering amusements, we found a match to heal Anteros's wounded pride. Zeus's other queen and the royalty of Thebes. We found our way to Tyre eventually. Anteros has always preferred a wandering path, flitting about like the butterflies with whom he shares his wings. We had left many joyful human pairs in our wake, weddings half-planned before we could fly away. Then, in Tyre, we found a mortal woman who would wed the highest of kings. Europa was a lovely princess, weaving flowers into garlands by the seashore that day. She was known to the gods from her lineage. Europa's ancestor was Io, the bovine paramour of Zeus. That was enough for the divine to take note of the family, even generations removed from the event. Europa was notable in her own right. She was young, but already known to be fair and unflinching from duty. Her brothers admired her piety and aspired to be leaders in her image. Zeus was watching over Tyre that day as well, though his eye was on the capital and the princes discussing business within. Europa's brothers had destinies of their own, though the details of their fates had not yet condensed. I spied Zeus's eagle form soaring overhead and the girl winding garlands, and my fingers itched for a pair of arrows. Anteros, we're in for a show today, I said to my brother, as I drew my arrows of gold. He squealed with glee, turning circles in the air. I laughed along with him, light with the glow of youth. I took aim. One arrow struck Europa, the other the distant speck of Zeus. He saw the princess on the beach and dove down to a spot just out of her sight. Zeus found inspiration in her family's history and took on the form of a massive white bull. He trotted down the beach, tossing up sand with each proud step. I would grow used to Zeus's habit of capturing his paramour's attention in disguise. Rarely would Zeus be fully honest with those he loved, and love rarely strikes deeply past his armor of lies. Europa threaded the last flower into the garland and looked up. She saw the bull and was charmed at once. She rose, brushed sand from her skirt, and approached the bull with cautious steps. Zeus approached as docile as a pup, despite his size and strength. Europa stroked his broad nose and giggled as Zeus nuzzled her palm. For the afternoon, the two entertained Anteros and I as they frolicked about. 
Europa wound the flowered garland into a wreath, which she looped around his neck. The king of the gods wore the token happily as the two danced about the beach. It was a dance for two, the waves and the seabirds providing the music. Antares and I grinned and laughed at the Olympian's soft-hearted behavior, for who could imagine the king of the gods behaving like a well-trained pet? The night grew closer, and maidens from the palace of Tyre came looking for the princess. Europa called to them, wishing to share her new friend with her companions. Their arrival alarmed Zeus, though. He feared Europa would return to the palace and be married off to some prince or a lord before he could return. I know his thoughts in that moment only third-hand through rumor, and I'm not certain I trust this explanation. I've never dared ask about this moment. The bull knelt at Europa's side, offering a seat to the princess. She climbed onto his back, expecting a pleasant ride about the beach while she waited for her friends to travel down the slope and join her. Zeus's eyes were wide and wild, watching the maiden's approach. The bull turned into the ocean and dove into the crashing foam of the waves. Europa yelled out in fear, hands clutching the garland of flowers she'd wrapped around the bull. The strand held firm, and her skill in making it kept her from flying off the bovine Zeus's back. The maidens of Tyre's palace screamed and ran down the shore. Antros gasped, brow forward. This is not what I imagined, Antros murmured, watching the keenly bull steal away the princess of Tyre. Do not give up hope so quickly. Both arrows hit their mark and struck true. Their love is your domain. Let us follow and watch more closely. I'm sure the matter will be resolved, my dear brother. We set out after Zeus's flight, but I looked back a moment and saw Europa's three brothers running down the beach. They'd been drawn out by the commotion and joined in the yelling. Cadmus was in the lead. My quiver hummed against my side. Not yet. Soon, but not yet. I tore my eye from him and followed Zeus across the waves. Zeus carried Europa carefully to the great island named Crete. The island of Zeus's youth had sat near empty since Zeus took his place atop Mount Olympus. The shores were deserted, and the island was ruled by no one. Zeus carried Europa up from the waves and knelt upon the flat stretch of land overlooking the water surrounding his birthplace. The princess leapt from his back and stared at the bull with terror-filled eyes. Anteros and I settled on the mountainside to watch, close enough to hear their exchange without straining our ears. Zeus's form shifted from a gentle white bull to something more befitting his station. The transformation took only an instant, like a breeze clearing the mist rising from a waterfall. He tempered the glory of his godhood so as not to destroy Europa with his visage, but his form was unmistakable, nonetheless. You are something quite special, Europa, Zeus spoke, his voice rumbling with thunder. I brought you so far beyond the land of Tyre to offer you an unequaled honor. This island is sacred to me. I've searched this world for a queen that befits it. I would make you its queen. Antros quivered at my side, knowing Europa's answer even before she spoke it. Her fear had morphed to awe, as the arrow in her chest demanded. In the long pause before her answer, I assume she considered what horror a denial would have brought, but I can't say for certain. Perhaps she thought only of the riches her new station would grant her. I wonder if she thought of her father or her brothers in that moment. I wonder if she knew how long they would search the world for her. I wonder if she considered the kingdom and life she traded away by ceding to love Zeus. If she did, those thoughts did not stop her. I can understand her well, for I try not to let similar thoughts trouble me. They would poison what happy moments we are granted in love. 
Europa's regrets would never outweigh her glory as Zeus's consort. I will be your queen, Europa said. I will rule your kingdom and make it the envy of all kings. Zeus smiled and led her away to her palace. Europa met her subjects with grace and poise. It was the happy ending Anteros desired, and we two gods watched their happy vows with satisfied smugness. I had other matters to attend to, so I left Anteros to hum happily over the couple. At that time, I thought the joy between Zeus and his new queen would be shattered in a short span of time. Hera has never been known to be kind or understanding of her husband's lovers. Somehow, the Queen of Olympus did not send the Queen of Crete the torments Zeus's other paramours faced. Few of Zeus's lovers were granted such mercy. I wish Hera had spared another. A few years later, I encountered Hermes in my mother's court. It wasn't the first time I found him there. He had felt my arrows many times at this point, and one of those arrows had left him yearning for Aphrodite. I flitted into court hoping to speak with Aphrodite, or perhaps my sister. Instead, I found a lovelorn Hermes and a pleased Himeros, enjoying the swift messenger's pining. You will, of course, offer our lady love my greetings and well wishes, yes? Hermes asked. I rolled my eyes at the familiar request. Himeros just grinned. It was an unsettling expression on his features. Of course, the god of unrequited love lied. Himeros, I said in vague warning, drawing Hermes' attention. Eros, how nice to see you. You've done good work of late. I thought back, trying to remember what godling or hero I had ensnared of late, but I came up empty. Desire had kept me directed at mortals and minor gods, who at that time could be disregarded as much as common mortals were. I thank you for your notice of my art, but I'm not certain of your meaning. The Queen of Crete and our Olympian king are those I had in mind. Europa has three fine demigod sons now. I know of no other woman who can claim such an honor. And just recently, when Hera's mood shifted and drew Zeus's eye away from Crete, your arrow struck Asterius on Europa's behalf. A singular man he is to be willing to be a prince beside a queen when he could have been a king elsewhere. And to raise three sons not of his own blood as well. Europa's romance has been well crafted by your hands. I suppose one of Zeus's loves had to have a happy ending eventually. You have had so much practice with those. Hermes prattled on, and I nodded along, ignoring the insults threaded underneath his praise. Hermes at least was more subtle in his jabs than his half-brother, though I still found myself wanting to grant Hermes a tragedy. I swore to be sparing with arrows to his inconsequential partners. Himeros's domain could linger around the messenger god for as long as desire wished. Mostly my mind was devoted to considering Europa's brother, Cadmus. He slew my father's dragon not long ago. It was a respectable feat and had won him favor from the gods. Even Ares could not deny that Cadmus deserved some reward for his loyal pursuit of his missing sister and the slaying of so mighty a monstrosity, though my father did curse him for the loss of the sacred creature. Such acts typically were rewarded with kingdoms and riches. Cadmus was already destined to raise the walls of Thebes, so his reward would be of a different nature, a godly bride. Specifically, if rumor was to be believed, Harmonia was to wed Cadmus. Uncle, I interjected into Hermes' rambling. Perhaps your clever ears have caught word from Olympus. Is it true that Zeus intends to bind my sister to the new king, Cadmus? Yes, that is true. That line is blessed, it seems. I'm sure you will soon have nieces and nephews worthy of praise, Eros, Hermes said, mischief dancing in his eyes. Harmonia was an odd choice to partner with the mortal king. 
Nymphs and minor goddesses were more commonly chose for pious men, though admittedly few mortals had warranted such an honor in that time. My quiver felt heavy at my side. Harmonia and Cadmus's arrows shimmered in their place, demanding to be drawn. Now, take your aim, little god. I made my excuses, and I left Hermes at the non-existent mercy of Himeros. I searched for Harmonia in our mother's halls, but I did not find her. Then I flew to where Thebes sat in its infancy. Harmonia was already in Thebes, such as it was. She was watching from the roof of an early structure of Thebes as Cadmus and his five loyal dragon soldiers worked. She leaned against the half wall around the top of the building while I perched on it beside her. I do hope you intend to use those arrows of yours, she said. I grimaced, staring down at the king of this unbuilt kingdom. I will be married to him whether you kindle love or not. You shouldn't be. It's below your station, I said to Harmonia. Already I felt the loss of her. What would the court of Aphrodite be without my sister? It would be as you know it to be, for you've never known the court with Harmonia properly present. In a sense it is, I suppose. I've grown curious about him, though. His love of his sister drove him to search for her years after his brothers gave up. He slew our father's dragon to avenge his men. Cadmus is a hero, and I suspect he shall make a fine king. I could have far worse of a husband, Harmonia told me. Her normally placid face was colored with curiosity. Below us, Cadmus clapped a hand to one of his comrades' shoulders. The men laughed at some clever word that did not carry up the wall before they dispersed to move the stones to form the foundations of Thebes' citadel. There are worse mortals, I admitted. I will marry him even if you do not gift us golden wounds, brother. I wish to see the world beyond our mother's side. I'd rather do it loving him, but I will carry on without love if I must. Harmonia told me without a hint of anxiety or doubt. There was no pleading for my blessing, no begging for my understanding. That type of behavior was not in Harmonia's nature. She lived in facts and diplomacy, not in wishes and plaintive cries. I drew an arrow from my quiver, gleaming and golden. It hummed in my palm, pleased to be drawn at last. I stabbed that arrow like a dagger into my sister's back. She gasped, her eyes locked on Cadmus. I drew Cadmus's golden arrow and struck him solidly, the wound so deep I knew his love would never be dislodged. That night, my sister married a mortal. It would be an eon before she returned to the retinue of Aphrodite. When she returned, she would be changed in every possible way. Harmonia would never be the sister I still remember her as again. That night in Thebes, the gods drank and were merry and celebrated the blessed union. I drank and grieved and watched Anteros flit about with our warlike brothers, Deimos and Phobos, all of them drunk and happy. I saw Harmonia hanging on the arm of her husband, enamored and blissful. I saw Cadmus rejoicing at Europa's attendance of his wedding. Somehow, Hera made no complaint at her husband's other queen attending an event sacred to her. The goddess smiled on the crowd even as Cadmus congratulated Europa on Zeus's place at her side. I do not understand why Hera could suffer that presence, scuffing her pride, when all others faced her wrath. I suppose it is not my place to know the inner workings of the Queen of the Gods. Her patience would not last. The gods of Olympus all came to attend this mortal's wedding, but Cadmus only cared for his new wife and his visiting sister. The rest of the party could have vanished and Cadmus would have been joyful nonetheless. He was a good man. I hoped he'd bring Harmonia enough joy to outweigh the eventual tragedy. Years later, Harmonia would claim that he did. 
even as she wept for their children. 